Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures on the history of yoga. Let's continue with the next lecture. The word darshana translates as philosophy into English. In the Sanskrit original, darshana means point of view. And arising out of the Vedas and the Upanishads came six different points of view, yoga being one of them. Yoga involves practice and relates to the others as follows. Yoga requires an understanding of the physical world, which is provided in the darshana known as Vaisheshika. Yoga requires a logical approach to the world, and the darshana called Nyaya provides a logical way of engaging the world. Yoga requires a sense, if not a regularity, in the performance of ritual. Mimamsa darshana provides the pathways and the paradigms for how to engage properly and effectively in ritual behavior. And yoga provides the pathway to, as we know from the Upanishads, to elevating oneself to states of connection and a feeling of oneness with the intended object. And this is one of the perspectives contained within the darshana of Vedanta. Yoga, however, cleaves most closely as the sixth darshana to the fifth darshana in this list, and that darshana is called Sankhya. Sankhya outlines the world. Sankhya proclaims, building on that passage from the Vedas and repeated in the Upanishads, that our essential nature is like a tree, a tree that harbors two birds. One of the birds quietly looks on, while the other bird actively gathers fruit and enjoys and revels and flies away and comes back and raises the brood, all under the watchful gaze of this other bird. Now this reciprocity by some may be characterized as a dualism. The Vedanta texts talk about Atman is Brahman. The Vedanta texts quote the Upanishads as saying there is one without a second. Sankhya complicates things by putting, in a sense, the knower of the field in relationship with the activity of the field. And this philosophy, this darshan, deeply informs the practice of yoga even more than the other four. 
It reached classical form with a scholar known as Ishvara Krishna, who wrote an encapsulated text called the Sankhya Karika. Each of those six darshanas has a text, probably written sometime between 200 BC in 400 or 500 CE that became the classic marker and the go-to resource for understanding the physical world, understanding ritual, understanding logic, understanding oneness, understanding practice, and in this case of Sankhya, understanding the power of wisdom to provide freedom and liberation. The purpose, right from the opening verse of the Sankhikarika, states that the received means, things that people usually do to try to make the world okay, are not abidingly successful. And specifically, Sankhya provides a critique of Mimamsa slash the Vedas. And it says that, yes, ritual has its place, but no matter how many rituals can be performed, no ritual can pre prepare the individual for the greatest challenges in life. And the text goes on to say that, yes, some drugs may be effective for treating certain diseases, but no drug can prepare the individual for facing the ultimate challenges of life, including death itself. And the Sankhya system, as articulated by Ishvara Krishna in the Sankhikarika, says that the only means to freedom the only escape from the inevitability of pain is to develop a discernment and an understanding of the operation of the manifest world, an understanding of the unmanifest, and the knower. So it requires a knowledge that has a positionality in three different places, an understanding of how the things of the world emerge, an understanding of that place from which the things of the world emerge, and an understanding of that force, that powerful, silent, inactive presence omnipresent, omniscient, undying, uncreated, unruffled, undestroyed. So as we can see, it's building upon the principles laid out in the Vedas and the Upanishads, and it is providing literally a roadmap and a cosmographic chart of how to understand this relationship between subject, but higher subject, the conditions of lower subjectivity and the reality of the external world. And it unfolds like this. 
the world spins out from a matrix known as Prakriti. And this matrix, often marked with a feminine gender, often aligned with all of the many manifestations of the goddess in her various forms and her various skills. And before she begins her dance, she holds in her body the potential for every created item or object. And in that process, she shimmers such that the three gunas become activated. Heaviness coming down into gross materiality, rajas, the impulse and the impetus, and sattva, that spark of light, that spark of luminosity that can be found even in the objects of the world. And as she begins to spin out that dance, the first to emerge is a faculty or a place or a concept field or a psychological state that is known as buddhi, which literally means that which awakens. And bud is the verb root for buddhi. It means to awaken. And when Prakriti begins to stir and awaken, she moves into one of eight different states of being or modalities. And these modalities are syzygetic, meaning that they complement one the other. And they begin with weakness to be countermanded by strength. They continue with attachment to be countered by dispassion. It continues with ignorance to be countered with knowledge. And the seventh possible manifestation is viciousness and lack of virtue to be countered by virtue or dharma itself. And out of those impulses that are buried deep in a psyche that has known experience after experience after experience, deep memories called samskaras and vasanas gathered over a lifetime, gathered over the course of a day, gathered over the course of many lifetimes, present themselves into human situation and then configure and operate such that they congeal into a personality. They congeal into an ego in Sanskrit known as the ahamkara, the literal eye-maker. And this eye-maker then pushes out a mind, a thinking, cognitive, generative organ of a certain sense that connects with the five sense organs, 
And with the five motor organs, those will be detailed, that stir up subtle energies that then propel, depending upon the samskara, that then propel that living being to engage with the physical world in a particular way. Now let's back up. It was quite a mouthful. We're going to back up from the very base, and we're going to see various correlations that are hardwired into Sankhya philosophy, and through which we can understand and make good sense of the yoga that follows. The classical darshan called yoga darshan. So, gross materiality has the form of the earth. This flesh composed of earth, these images crafted of the earth, this platform crafted of particles of earth. And each of these substances, including the human body, including metal, including textile, continues to emit particles that rise from those bodies of the earth, and those particles interface with the olfactory and enter through the nose into the sensorium. So earth, connected with the sense of smelling, manifested through the nose, And then the next is water. Water, the next densest, or the, the, a little bit less dense than Earth because of its fluidity, but it connects with the human body through the taste, the taste buds, through the mouth. And then we have fire. We have tejas, we have agni, we have light, we have luminosity that enters the body through the eyes, creating form. Then we have the wind contacting the body through the skin, creating touch. And then we have space carrying noise into the ears and registering sound. The body also includes the excretory function, the reproductive function, the gripping and giving function of the hands, the walking function of the legs and the feet, and the speaking function of the voice. All of these energies suffused and intertwined with the movement of breath, and depending upon the constitution and the history and the aggregation of all of the desires, fulfilled desires, unfulfilled desires, wishes and fantasies and memories, that person pushes out in the world in a particular way, encountering and engaging again and again, and inevitably, encountering disappointment as well as encouragement 
And without a philosophical bent of mind, we'll just go hither and yon, to and from, again and again and again. For many people, an encounter with darkness calls up the question, who am I? Who am I? And according to Sankyo, you are all of that. You are the knower of the field, and you are the earth. You are water, you are fire, you are air, you are space, you are the capacity to smell, you are the capacity to taste, you are the capacity to see, you are holding touch and potential, and you are holding the possibility to hear, and you have a nose, you have a mouth, you have eyes, you have skin, you have ears, and you move, and you work, and you travel, and you take and you give, and you eat and you digest, you yearn and perhaps you procreate, you take and you give, you walk and you stay at rest. You speak and you speak and you speak. All of this grandeur makes you human. And you have the gift of a mind to keep all of this organized. You have the gift of a sense of self, a name given by your parents, a name or perhaps a nickname given by others who love you. You have a history, a history that you love to tell. And in order to achieve freedom from the pain inevitable in life, there is one modality in that reservoir called the booty that will allow you to sift and sort and discern through every circumstance so that you can move toward freedom. And that capacity is the capacity of jnana, is the capacity of insightful knowledge. And that voice that wells up and speaks with discernment will remind you that I, the knower of the field, am not really doing anything. That I, the knower of the feel, the pure consciousness, cannot be claimed or named. That I, my true self, can own nothing. And that knowledge, when it prevails, and when it's applied, allows the individual, the individual to claim that birthright of consciousness, to claim freedom, 
and to gather experience and offer every experience to that consciousness and thereby move into freedom. The history of yoga cannot be told without close attention to the Yoga Sutra. The Yoga Sutra, composed by Patanjali, dates from long ago. And as is well known, it is very difficult to give precise chronicle to the literature of India. Some people have surmised that it was a gathering together of separate texts, perhaps from a couple of centuries before the Common Era. Some people surmise following through the threads of Buddhism that are found in the text from a later period that it comes from no earlier than the second century after the beginning of the Common Era. Some people have surmised that really the only way to deal with the Yoga Sutra as a text is to see it in the context of its commentaries and that those commentaries probably did not arise until around four or 500 after the Common Era. And that makes it alluring to speculate and impossible to come up with a firm conclusion. But what we do know of this text is that it comprises one of the six darshanas, the six philosophical systems of classical Indian thought. And it also became very widely disseminated. It was absorbed into the language of the Puranas from the seventh century forward. It became roughly at the same time well-known and widely respected in the tradition of Jainism. And it appears in the literature both as a champion of all that is good and as a foil for people like Shankara for century after century after century. The Yoga Sutra saw a great revival in interest in the 19th century, in the latter part of the 19th century. And it was during the colonial period when the theosophists and others, many of them British civil servants, took it upon themselves to make certain that the great literature of the Sanskrit language was translated and that the ideas were communicated in such a way that the world could know the glory that was and the glory that continues to be India. Swami Vivekananda, living in Pasadena, rendered his own interpretation of the Yoga Sutra into English based on a prior translation of the text into English. And most yoga teacher trainings worldwide will require each and every student to have a copy, to have a translation of the Yoga Sutra. In Los Angeles, some years ago, Swami Prabhavananda of the Vedanta Society worked closely with the author and playwright Christopher Isherwood in the production of a book called How to Know God, 
that includes an interpretation and translation of the Yoga Sutra. And over the past hundred or so years, hundreds of versions have been published in many, many, many different languages. Again, the importance of the Yoga Sutra historically cannot be overemphasized. The reception of the text has not been without some, let's say, uh, measured concern that the text, it, that it not become, in a sense, a fetish and worshiped unto itself. And there are some who would uh, claim to be purveyors of yoga who may have one or two favorite verses of the Yoga Sutra that they may know very, very well, yet they may have missed the bits and pieces and may have remained they may remain unaware of the various nuances that can be found regarding yoga in the commentaries, the commentaries that came up in the 6th century, in the 10th century, in the 17th century, and also 19th and 20th century commentaries on the Yoga Sutra. So it's a little bit like a, a Rorschach test, like what do you do with the Yoga Sutra? And what I would like to do in rehearsing the text and reviewing the text is to give a sense of the issues that are brought to surface by the topics covered in the Yoga Sutra and to highlight perhaps a couple of areas that have gone unnoticed through history that could be reclaimed and be cognizant, remain cognizant of the fact that we are creatures of history, that we are all enmeshed in the flow of time, and that this text has served different needs for different people as it remains an object of interpretation and reinterpretation. In the Sankhya system, which is the philosophical underpinning of the Yoga Sutra, no mention of Ishvara can be found. Sankhya, as a philosophy, cleaves closer to Buddhism in that it does not make any statement about a controlling, world-creating entity in a nutshell, in Sankhya, we find a non-theistic theology slash psychology slash spirituality. What distinguishes yoga is that yoga opens a conversation that allows for the possibility of Ishvara, but defines this Ishvara or defines this God placeholder in a very interesting and non-committal way. And I say that with a positivity. It defines God as the best Purusha who has never ever known a relationship with Prakriti a Purusha, a consciousness that has never been enmeshed within the realm of karma. Now, by definition, 
One within yoga categories can never speculate about any fixed qualities of God. God never enters a narrative, but remains an inspiration to all who hope to teach a way toward ultimate happiness and freedom. Later, in another reference to Ishvara, there is the notion that you can have a devata, you can have a devata ishta of your own configuration, of your own wish, of your own desire. So therefore, if a Shaivite reads this text called the Yoga Sutra or chants this text called the Yoga Sutra, their ishta devata may very well be Shiva and their configuration and the imagination of their religious goal may in fact be to become like that great meditator Shiva. And it could also be the case that the reader, the appropriator of this text is a Vaishnava, meaning a follower of Krishna. This person, when they see Ishtadevata, will immediately go to Krishna. And when the passage suggests the performance of japa, not only might they go for the recitation of Om, but as a Vaishnava, their japa may be Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And that's all within the flow of history. A shakta, the devotee of the goddess, as her or his Ishtadevata may take Sarasvati, may take the glory of the goddess as their focus and their inspiration. And as we know from the giant appropriation of yoga practice, we know every jain is invited to take as their personal inspiration one of the tier tankaras, one of the 24 elevated perfect teachers who lived according to the tradition and walked and breathed and talked on the earth and model their life after Parshvanath, for instance. So, from the beginning, we can see there's a malleability to the Yoga Sutra, a theology to the Yoga Sutra that is significantly open-ended. But as we look at this age-old definition of yoga, which could be 2,000 years old, could be older, we see yogish chittavritti Narodaha. Narodaha, a word lifted up by the Buddha. We see the word vritti, a word that connotes a swirling activity. And we see the word chitta, okay, ta, that which is derived chit from consciousness that's in close proximity to consciousness and it implies all things prakriti, all things that emerge 
from the three gunas. And we see that the definition of this classical approach to yoga is that yoga is to be found in the stilling of the turbulence and the fluctuations that arise and keep on wanting to point to consciousness. And there's a, almost a sense of, of yearning in that. And it says that when that stilling takes place, then emerges the swarupa, the own form, drashtahu, of the drashtar, of the seer. A description of the purusha, a description of the unsullied self. And in that brilliant and opening introductory cascade into yoga, we see encapsulated, as only a sutra can, the philosophy of Sankhya and an acknowledgement of the human yearning for freedom. But then the text goes into nyaya, goes into the logic that must be followed in order for the system to cohere, and even more importantly, for the text and its practices to be effective. And in this remarkably historical, as well as a historic moment, the Yoga Sutra provides a five-fold analysis of all of the different styles and variations of our thoughts. And on the one hand, we can perhaps challenge Patanjali on some details, but on the other hand, it's actually quite instructive and fun to see, is this something out of history? Would this apply also to people in Africa 100,000 years ago? Will it apply to people living in the throes of global warming a hundred years hence? So let's test it. Okay, according to Patanjali, we can see things that we know are real and are testable and verifiable. We can also encounter falsity and error. We have a capacity for imagination. In our thoughts, we can put things together and configure them and create a little bit of a thought experiment or an alternative reality, an imaginative reality. We can remember. And we also sleep. And it's very, very important and restorative category for thought. And that, that blessed state of abhava, that blessed state of surrendering into that space where we no longer feel the compunction and compulsion to be. It's an important part of this mix of the fivefold. No judgment is made on any of the five except perhaps falsehood. And there's something beautiful about its inclusion. 
because it shows the importance of being able to discern how important or really how real the situation may be. And with that beginning, Patanjali then says, there's two ways to quiet it down. One is practice, abhyasa. You've got to do yoga to experience yoga. And two is dispassion. And again, does not translate well into English. Freedom from the habitual habit of going back always to a place of desire. Perhaps that's a better way to translate vairagya. But again, what does that remove about? It's about recovering that sense of being the witness, the knower of the field, rather than always defaulting to being the knower. Is this timely? Would it have been effective 100,000 years ago on the veldt of Africa? Will it be effective to view the mind and to be able to pacify the mind 100 years hence in the midst of rising waters? Okay, I'll hazard a guess that an enduring philosophy steps out of the clutches of time. And in the next several verses, there's a beautiful description of all the different ways in which we can bring ourselves to a place of quiescence. One is to do, as Saraswati is doing here, is to count on your japa beads, to pray, to recite mantra, to say om, to invoke perhaps your ishtadevata, to give and dedicate and sacrifice your thoughts through devotion to something greater than yourself. That's, that's a very effective method. Another effective method is mastery of breath. Breathing in and holding. Breathing out and holding. Another way is to keep a dream journal and to treasure those dreams that blast you into a place of transcendence. And in teaching thousands of students over decades, everybody has a happy dream that brings a smile to the face. That's a path, that's a way of yoga. to understand and know the mind and the shortcomings of mind, another path of yoga. And they even go so as far to say is that whatever brings you happiness, follow that. And whatever you want to do, try that. And then there's a definition, a definition of samadhi that states the great state of yoga is when the distinction between the seer, the process of seeing, and that which is seen disappears. And the mind and the body 
becomes like a crystalline, perfectly clear jewel, that that indeed is the place of freedom. Focusing, sustaining focus, using thoughts to develop that focus, going deep to understand the qualities and conditions and the impulses and impetus, the vasanas and samskaras, and to tell the narrative and drop the narrative, all of that leads to the creation of a place of near bija samadhi, a place, a moment of freedom that can help undo all of the knots of attachment that have built up through this day, for the past week, month, life, years, lives. Allowing knot by knot to be untied and dropping them and letting them fall and then elevating into that place, perfectly present in the moment, filled with the senses, receiving, giving, no distinctions, that in the first pada of the Yoga Sutra provides the gift of yoga within time and also out of time. Patanjali's Yoga Sutra made a significant contribution to philosophical history in its articulation of the Eightfold Yoga Path, known as Ashta Eight Anga Limbs. And in this conceptualization of spirituality, it brought in to its fold, some of the best insights of other shamanical traditions that arose many years prior in Northeast India, particularly Jainism and Buddhism. At the core of Jain practice and at the core of Buddhist practice is a very strict ethical code. This ethical code forms the foundation for classical yoga. And this ethical code has reverberated down through our own history in America with the civil rights movement, with the trainings that Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks received in India about how to affect the peaceable kingdom through the personal observance of nonviolence as taught by Mahatma Gandhi, who himself had taken initiation both with Swami Kuvalyananda as well as with Paramahamsa Yogananda, who traveled from Los Angeles to Gandhi's ashram in India to initiate him in the direct practice of yoga. These five ethical principles begin with nonviolence, ahimsa, continue into satya, holding being with truth, asteya, 
which is not stealing, don't take what doesn't belong. Brahmacharya, carrying yourself with the comportment of the universe, with the responsibility of giving homage and respect and appreciation to the greatness of all that is. And then finally, for the Jains, Aparigraha, not clinging to any possession, minimizing human need for the sake of lightening one's spiritual burden. Those five comprise what are called the yamas of this first phase of Patanjali's yoga, and they remain part of the historical conversation about how we can make the world a better place, and it begins with the self. The second limb extends this trajectory of human affect into considered reflection in five areas. The first, how can we purify? How can we participate in the project of Shaucha? Second, how can we find contentment, santosha, the contentment of positivity that makes our life a joy for ourselves and for others? How can we find that yogic edge called tapas? How can we confront, face, delve in to darkness, delve into difficulty, to strengthen ourselves and to purify ourselves, to generate the tapas of the heat that will help undo the source of pain? Svadhyaya, study, reflection on the self, reading about the self, writing about, expressing always toward that higher self. And then again, the theological aspect of yoga, Ishvara Pranidhana, dedicating self so that that self can be remade in the image of a higher self, whether it be the Parshvanat of the Jinnas, the Buddha for the Buddhists, Krishna for the Vaishnavites, Shiva for the Shaivites, Shakti in one of her many forms for the followers of the goddess. In South India, virtually every Hindu household shrine includes an image of Jesus. Ishvara knows no bounds. And then we move on from Yama to Niyama to Asana. Developing a posture within the body that is firm, stira, and sukha, gentle and kind and like sugar. And that balance point beyond opposites, capable through asana, allows people the fortitude to sit and do the reflective meditative work, and also to be able to meet challenges without the negative impact, the clenching of the stomach that can result in difficulties and ulcers, without the clenching of the jaw, 
Okay, all of this moving into stability and ease, asana releases all of those bindings and those noddings up of the muscles and of the tendons and allows release. Pranayama, the ayama, the control, the intimacy, the management, the mastery of the breath, the life force. To breathe in and to hold. To breathe out. And then the holding of the exhale, so many worlds, so many ills, so many misfortunes can be undone. And it says in the text more than once that in the holding of the exhaled breath, the covering over the light that is innate in our suffic nature, that covering can begin to dissolve. or can dissolve even momentarily. And when the breath has done its work, pratyahara, the gathering in of the senses, the pulling back on the reins, the image from the Bhagavad Gita of the tortoise pulling its limbs and its head inside its shell, there can be this inward, inwardness, this focus arises that allows for dharana. The dharana on earth, water, fire, air, space. The dharana on, why do I do this? Why am I affected? Why does that person push my buttons? That type of dharana, insightful dharana, that then can lead into, oh, the steadiness of the meditative experience, and then epiphany, samadhi, a dissolution of the boundaries between self and other, an elevation of the human person into the space of one's chosen divinity. Beautiful beautiful techniques, and in their mastery comes a mastery of the world. That naroda of samadhi, okay, that stilling of the thoughts that occurs when one elevates to that eighth phase of yoga, then allows with the re-entry into the world, single-mindedness, ekagrita, where you're able to really focus in, and you're able then to direct your senses and your mind and your perfected body into the worlds that you choose to inhabit always informed by nonviolence and truthfulness, by not stealing, by going with dignity, and without clutching or accumulating, but you're able to do remarkable things. You're able to speak well, you're able to understand, you're able to really know what other people are thinking, you're able even to let yourself be unseen these powers 
undeniably present through yoga, elevate one to a place of discernment where this mastery allows you to go and abide in that place of sattva. And from that place of sattva, to give honor and space for that pure consciousness. In that pure consciousness, we find our freedom. And yet, it remains vital, it remains vital that karma be understood. For everyday people, that karma is tinged either with darkness or with light or with a mixture of different colors. But for the yogi, it is neither black nor white nor mixed. And when that equipoise state becomes the go-to, then slowly and surely, without allowing hubris or ego to set in, a pathway toward freedom can be woven into a way of engagement of the world known as aklishta karma, which means that you're still performing action, but those actions are not driven by egotism, they're not driven by ignorance, they're not driven by attraction, they're not driven by repulsion or even clinging on to your own sense of self, but you're simply able to be. A very delicate skill and one that so many people get so close and yet they fall under the sway of flattery. They let their head be turned by power. The higher one rises, clinging to that ego, the more dramatic will be the fall. And so many yogis have walked that fine line, but become bogeys, people that are after enjoyment, and the karma comes back, and the karma crashes down, and the mighty have fallen again and again and again. And what Patanjali does, very timely, very sociological and very psychological, is say, Keep humble. Never let your ego get ahead of you. And if your vigilance matches the vigilance of the ever-present witness, then when the time for passing comes, the surrender can be complete. As I sat with Mr. Iyengar in his basement library one day, and as we went through the Yoga Sutra together, 
And as he shared with me the meaning literally inscribed in gold on his own mandala amulet, every aspect of yoga in Sankhya could be found. And he walked that fine line between pride in yoga and human humility. Each of the elements, earth, water, fire, air, and space, each of the correlate mantras, each of the four directions and implying above and below as well, each of the rungs of yoga, the yamas, the niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi were present. And I felt inspired that this layman never took monastic vows, this family man whose children worked to carry on his legacy, that this, in many ways, everyday person was able to model for others a life grounded in the principles and practices espoused in the Yoga Sutra. So many translations through the years. Swami Vivekananda, Paramahansa Yogananda worked with this text, Swami Satchidananda. One of my favorites is the Taimini translation sponsored, published by the Theosophical Society many, many years ago, and it shows that yoga remains within the flow of history. And one of the great contributions of, of the Western world and the Aristotelian model of science and the Cartesian model of science has postulated theories of evolution, theories of energy that in some ways are a little bit different, but in some ways are quite resonant with the yogic perspective. And in that particular book called Science of Yoga, the science metaphors are laid alongside the yogic principles and practices. Another great translation of the Yoga Sutra, the textbook of yoga psychology by Dr. Ramamurti Mishra, written, published in the United States. And it takes the insights of modern psychological theory as we find in Jung and in Freud and reads their ideas and their insights against the psychological insights of the Yoga Sutra. One other historic moment for the Yoga Sutra, which had wide dissemination, uh, Robert Ernest Woods, a translator at Harvard University and contemporary of William James, these people, these early pioneers of thought science in the West were familiar with the Yoga Sutra. And the idea of samskara and vasana preconditioning and setting the stage for 
the psychology of each and every individual. These ideas that we find in Freud and in Jung, they are ideas that certainly are found in the verses of the Yoga Sutra. Every yoga teacher training requires of its students to know the principles included in the Yoga Sutra. And one of the great uh, book collection opportunities I would suggest for every yoga teacher is to find as many copies of the Yoga Sutra as you can and look at the differences. Think about the word choices made. See what period of time informs this. Is this a 1960s transpersonal take on the Yoga Sutra? Or is this from some other epoch or some other um, some other time period or, or driven by some other need or urge. One of my favorite revisits to the Yoga Sutra has been the many people, including David Frawley and including Georg Feuerstein, who have reread the Yoga Sutra as a parable for developing an ecologically informed lifestyle as we move into the world of climate change. Historically, a very important document, contemporaneously an abidingly rele relevant document, and by knowing what's in the Yoga Sutra, and by understanding its long history and history of reception, those with an interest in yoga can never fail, going back again and again to Patanjali. Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. The Puranas. By around the fourth century, during a very exuberant period in Indian history known as the Gupta era, a new explosion of devotional literature arose, and many texts were written, many temples were built, many sculptures were erected, and this era in Indian literature is known as the time of the Puranas. 
And from the fourth century forward, clusters of movements developed, some to very local deities and some to deities spread hither and yon in all parts of India and beyond. This, this culture extended all through Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Indonesia. And with this came a new way of thinking about yoga. And the yoga darshana, which had been established some years before, became interlaced with these ways of devotion and these ways of bhakti and with these ways of temple worship that saw yoga at the base of how to follow and enhance practice and enhance life well-being through linking yoga practice with devotion to one or another of the deities. And what we will begin with in this sequence is Krishna devotion. And Krishna devotion had its seeds in the narratives of the Mahabharata. And Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita and through different places and episodes in the Mahabharata is revealed to be an incarnation, an avatar of Vishnu. And in this later period, in the Bhagavata Purana, great detail is given about the childhood of Krishna, the exploits of Krishna, and specifically how to enact and maintain a devotion of Krishna through yoga that will benefit the devotee and allow that devotee to use Ashtanga Yoga, the eight limbs of yoga, to build the good life. Now Krishna, it is said from childhood, was a little bit naughty. And there's one wonderful story enacted in Bharatanatyam, told in the, the Bhagavata Purana, which means the old tale of Bhagavatam, of the Lord, referring in this case to Lord Krishna. And his mother had to go out just for a little bit, but she'd spent all morning churning butter, churning butter, churning butter, and that butter had been gathered into a pot. And as she departed to just go for a short time, she told the toddler Krishna, I'm putting the ghee up here. I'll be right back. And she placed the ghee in a place beyond Krishna's reach. But what Krishna did was he took a stone and he threw it up at the pot and created this stream of elixir of ghee. He loved ghee. Melted butter. And it was sort of dripping off his chin when his mother came back and then she scolded him and said, I put that ghee up there so you couldn't have it. How dare you? And as she scolded him, she opened his mouth and said, I know it went in there. But when she opened his mouth and she gazed into his mouth, she had an epiphany and she saw all of the universe, all of the many universes within the mouth 
of her own son. And she lost consciousness, fell into a swoon, fell into an abyss of bliss. And after some time, when she came to her senses again, she touched the feet of her son and honored him, knowing his greatness. He grew up near the mountain Govardhan, and in various stories, he offered protection through the Yamuna River and that mountain, protection against forces of evil at one point, grabbing up a serpent out of that river that was poisoning the people and danced on that serpent until it died. Again, beautifully depicted in many, many performances of Bharatanatyam. And in another moment, he lifted that mountain to protect the city of Vrindavan on the banks of the Yamuna River from an onslaught of weapons from demonic forces. So many stories. He grew up to be counselor to Arjuna, and he died a sad death, a bit like the death of Achilles, where someone caught him in the heel, the one piece of his body that had not been dipped in the elixir that provides immortality. The stories of Krishna abound. And in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, a movement arose established by a sage called Chaitanya in Bengal, who never even made it to Vrindavan, the birthplace and the life place of Lord Krishna. And his love and devotion and his recitation and study of the Bhagavata Puranam created a movement that endures through all parts of India and through the world today, whereby people dedicate themselves, model themselves, aspire to have the graciousness and the beauty and the wisdom of Krishna, such as was imparted to Arjuna. And along the way, in the Bhagavata Puranam, this early text devoted to the stories of Krishna and how best to worship Krishna, in this book, it says to prepare yourself to be the best possible devotee, become fully alert. Regulate your prana. Understand your in-breath, the holding of the in-breath, the out-breath, and the holding of the out-breath, and then engage the mind. Avoid vulgar conduct and delight in conduct that is conducive to liberation. Eat appropriate foods in moderation. And here the Krishna devotees will go to the chapters of the Bhagavad Gita that talk about 
the best balance of food, repeated again and again in the Bhagavata Purana. Observe the five yamas. Observe nonviolence, truthfulness, not stealing, sexual propriety. Observe minimization of one's possessions. Observe the five niyamas. Purify yourself with a morning bath. Keep your thoughts pure. Be content and happy with whatever befalls you. Perform tapas. Fast with the new moon. Fast at the full moon. Be silent periodically. Perform tapas. Generate that heat that's reflected in the energy of the kindled flame. Says Svadhyaya, repeat that name of Krishna and the Maha Mantra. That's one form of Svadhyaya. Do japa, as it states in the Yoga Sutra. Repeat that name, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. And for the devotees of Krishna, sometimes the mantra can be as simple as Radhe, Radhe, glorifying the name of Krishna's lover, Radha, which in the vocative, in the announcement of her name, becomes Radhe, Radhe, Radhe. That can be a mantra. But Dusvadhyaya also Read the Gita again and again and again. Read and know the stories of the Bhagavata Purana. Do asana. Do asana in honor and in love of Ishvara Pranidhana, in love of what's possible through the perfected body of the Lord. Ishvara Pranidhana, returning attention, dedicating attention to that highest Lord. And breathe. Breathe in and hold. Exhale and hold. Do Anuloma Viloma, one nostril, then the other. And repeat from side to side. And with this, one becomes established in you're able, as the Gita advises, to draw in the limbs just as the tortoise draws in its extremities. Concentrate. We will read some very, or hear some very explicit instructions about how to concentrate upon the Lord which allows one to enter into a sustained meditation as well as states of samadhi. So all eight limbs are invoked in the Bhagavata Purana as the gateway to the development of Krishna consciousness. And it begins with sitting in svastika asana, which could be full Padma, it could be Arda Padma, and it continues with meditation on the form of the Lord. 
And in the Bhagavata Purana, the yogi is advised to think about, to gaze upon, and take inside the countenance of Krishna, the lotus-like countenance of his entire body, wreathed with a garland of forest flowers, and to reflect upon the feet of Krishna in statuary often depicted standing with one foot a little bit elevated, playing a flute, and then gazing upon those feet which seemed to touch the earth so lightly and to visualize and to see the thunderbolt marks on those feet, just as the feet of the Buddha were said to be adorned with auspicious marks, so also the feet of Lord Krishna carry special insignias. And then to gaze upward and note the powerful thighs of Krishna and take in the color of his skin, the color of his thighs, which are deemed to be the color of the flax flower, a very deep and radiant hue of blue, and then gaze upon his lake-like navel, and then think upon how Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, is blessed and cradles up against the chest of Krishna. Look at his arms and reflect upon the arms of Krishna as guardians of the world. And sometimes seen as holding the flute, and other times holding the thousand-spoked disc. That disc, when thrown, can decapitate the enemy. And in a more auspicious moment, the arm that holds the conch shell, the conch shell that calls people to attention, and then the arm that at other moments will hold the mace, the weapon of war that can plow through the enemy, obliterating and even killing when needed. And then, rising above the beautifully formed neck is the lotus-like face of Krishna, exuding compassion, framed with a mass of curly hair, with an aristocratic nose, and crystal-like cheeks. These images of Krishna inspire, and these images of Krishna include a very gentle smile. And as one gazes upon the smile of Krishna, it brings comfort. And the Bhagavata Purana says that yoga 
focus, concentration, meditation upon the smile of Krishna brings delight and it will dry up an ocean of tears. And by practicing this active devotion upon the image of Krishna, the heart flows with devotion, with bhakti. And the yogi is lifted to an exalted state entirely beyond limitations of happiness and beyond the limitations of misery. With single-mindedness, as coached by Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita, the devotee of Lord Krishna through yoga comes to see the Supreme Self in all beings. Every activity thenceforth becomes a dance in honor of that Supreme Lord. And the equanimity treasured and valued by all yogis, that sweetness treasured particularly by devotees of Krishna, becomes the natural disposition becomes the way of expression in all aspects of human life. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Om Shanti. In the Rig Veda, the most frequently invoked and named and celebrated deity is Agni. And Agni has a form, and Agni has no form. Agni can and is kindled each and every day in every household. Every time someone lights a flame, turns on the oven, flicks on the electric switch, invokes the power of energy, the power of fire, to bring a little bit of goodness and a little bit of comfort to human life. Agni, powers all energy in all forms. And every day, people knowingly or unknowingly, from a yogic perspective, acknowledge fire. The fire of the belly digests our food. The fire of our desires emplace us within our chosen work. Fire keeps us warm. And the energy of fire, through a, an amazing process of inversion, is what allows us to have the blessing of air conditioning when it becomes too hot. The Puranas, 
from the fourth century forward, celebrated ever so many deities, Skanda Purana, Vishnu Purana, Bhagavata Purana, Shiva Purana, and also the Agni Purana. And in this remarkable and very sizable book, Agni speaks, and Agni tells stories of his deeds, tells stories of his power to make a conflagration that will destroy a forest. And toward the conclusion of the text, Agni aligns himself explicitly with yoga. We've seen, we've already considered some yogas that require attention to Agni from Buddhism, from Hindu texts, and we will see from Jain texts. And we know that tapas, that internal fire, is one of the important practices within yoga. And what Agni gives forth is his own interpretation of Ashtanga yoga, of Patanjali's yoga. And he gives some specific details that we can find very helpful in terms of the self-understanding of yoga as it was practiced then and as yoga continues to be practiced now. Beginning with nonviolence, ahimsa. And in order to understand how to refrain from acts of violence, we need to understand various ways in which human beings commit violence. And what Agni states is that violence includes any act that causes anxiety or mental harm. So if you're on the roadway and you cut someone off, that can be anxiety-producing both for yourself and for other people. That would be an act of violence. If insult is given, that insult causes mental harm and becomes an act of violence. Even more directly, an action, a violent action that, stills, that spills blood, that's obviously an act of violence. Or, in a more global sense, anything that obstructs what is beneficial to any being, or anything that interferes with liberty and freedom, or anything that takes away comfort, destroys comfort for a living being, that qualifies as an act of violence. So much mindful attention must go in to the practice of nonviolence, the practice of ahimsa. In Agni, the voice of Agni through the Agni Purana reminds us of this. Agni goes on to state, speak truth that is pleasant. In keeping with the spirit of nonviolence, so important 
to speak truth that will edify rather than speaking a truth that will diminish. In Agni, speaking directly to the sannyasis, to the renouncers, to the people like the Buddha, like those swamis who have committed themselves to the highest goals, says, practice brahmacharya, restrain oneself from going to that place of sensuous thoughts. Sensuous thoughts can lead to sensuous action. And for a vowed monk or for a vowed nun, those can become quite a distraction. Later, he has some advice for people like myself who are householders and words of encouragement. But for the monks, what Agni advises is figure it out and don't habitually go to that place that could lead you into the life of a householder with all of the attendant responsibilities. Most people in India take sannyas, as did the Buddha, after having experienced the fullness of human life. They would renounce the world in their elder years. And for those people, this would be very appropriate. Stealing. Agni says that anybody who is a robber, anybody that takes something that does not belong to them, that that person will take birth in the womb of a lower animal. Okay, so stealing, you might end up in the womb of a monkey, and those who have been to India probably know the theft that's been committed by a monkey, and that maybe your fate, if you as a human being steal something from someone, your next birth may be as a robber monkey. He goes on to say, and this is advice to sannyasins, to renouncers, he says, own only those items that are necessary for daily life. And he specifies, you can have a loincloth, and you can have some sandals, you can have a begging bowl, but the better life for a yogi is a life unburdened by possessions. So he raises the bar even beyond what we find in Patanjali. And we get a sense of social history here that in the fourth century, the fifth century, all the way up to the present, and now numbering probably more than a million, there are people who devote themselves to the life of sannyas, all parts of India, east, west, north, and south, and they follow Agni's advice. They have only a loincloth. They have only, perhaps, a staff and sandals. They have only a satchel, perhaps with some books and a begging bowl through which to receive alms. Now, interestingly, Agni says that the best tapas is to perform mantra. I offered at the beginning of this session a very simple creative mantra, Om, the universal mantra, Agni, the name of this deity, and Namaha, giving respect. 
in various parts of the text, Agni names other mantras, such as the Gayatri mantra, such as the Brahma mantra. The point is that mantra is a tapas, it requires time, it requires recitation, and it trains the mind into a place of one-pointedness. And he says that this recitation of mantra can lead to a marvelous state, wherein one elevates to the fourth state of consciousness. And drawing from the Upanishads, drawing from the lore of meditation traditions from all corners of India's yoga, he points out, Agni states, there are four levels of consciousness. There's the waking consciousness, day-to-day transactions. There's the dreaming consciousness, whereby in the state of sleep, digested items from things past will appear in dream, including perhaps some inspiration. That's the second state of consciousness. The third state of consciousness is deep sleep without dream. The meditative correlate would be entering into that place of blessed nothingness that carries the capacity to purify and to purge past karmas. But then the fourth stage of consciousness described in detail in the Chandogya Upanishad, this is the greatest level of consciousness wherein one fully awake, fully engaged, is able to be in the presence of Purusha, be in the presence of the witness, to engage the world without in any way becoming attached to the world. And according to the Agni Purana, this state of awareness, this state of yoga, brings one into that mystic nerve ganglion. I love the poetic license taken by our translator here, situated in the realm of the human heart that shines all through every activity. Meditate on this constant light. And to reinforce it, chant the Gayatri, Om Bhur Bhuva Swa Tat Savitur Varenyam Bhargo Devasya Dimahi Diyo Naha Prakchodiya. Savitri, invite that God of inspiration with that wonderful effulgence, the effulgence of the light of Agni. Invite that God to inspire you every single day. Petition that God. Talk to that God and let that God of light be reflected in all you see and all you do. How does one uncover that light? In the Yoga Sutra, it specifies, do pranayama. Hold for a very long time, 
the exhaled breath. And Lord Agni gives detailed instructions on how to perform that breath, how to perform that pranayam. And those instructions in pranayam yoga says the following. Beginning sorts of people are able to hold for 12. And those people will experience a little bit of perspiration in the pranayam. Middle level people will be able to hold that exhale breath for a count of 24. And those people will experience a bit of trembling. High-level meditators will be able to hold that exhale breath for a count of 36. And in that 36, they will enter a state of levitation. So we see here a mixing and a complexification of explanation of those practices of Patanjali's yoga and with that comes the liberation of one's own self through pranayam. Through that pranayam, there will be the acquisition of miraculous powers of aishvaryam, those wonderful powers of clairvoyance, those wonderful powers of mastery over the senses and the object of the senses. The yogi through this develops knowledge, develops non-attachment to worldly concerns, develops shraddha, develops faith, develops forbearance, patience, kashanti, develops devotion to Vishnu, that God that maintains and sustains life, that God that takes so many forms, including the form of Rama, including the form of Krishna. That yogi will develop energy, and that yogi will fully engage the world from a point, from a place that's inspired, fully occupying the space of yoga. Agni goes on to say that the best ritual, the best sacrifice, the best yajna to perform is the yajna of meditation, the yajna of dhyana. And it says that this meditation opens one to the gates of heaven. Echoing the advice of Lord Krishna to Arjuna, Agni says, focus always on the three gunas. See things as an array of tamas, rajas, and sattva, and allow each its own. Feel that lotus flower in the heart. Recite om, 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 and move in to that state of samadhi. Feel both 
giving forth and coming in those infinite rays of light that burn in the cavity of the heart. Do this practice of yoga again and again and again. Mantra, pranayama, all of the eight limbs leading up to samadhi. And with that, even the householder, and this is the very, very end of the large text known as the Agni Purana, with the blessings of this eightfold practice, even the householder will go to that place of nirvana, of freedom, of moksha. Om Agni Namaha Lord Shiva, perhaps known as Rudra in the Vedas, permeates so many aspects of what we know about divinity in India and beyond. Lord Shiva, through his dance, generates the destructive fire of death. Lord Shiva represents that presence of the awareness of the precipitous nature of existence. During the period of the Puranas, during the Gupta reign, the Shiva Purana came into existence, a very, very long text that tells so many different exploits of Lord Shiva. And during this time, a Ganesha Purana was written about his son Ganesha. The Skanda Purana was composed about his son Skanda, known in the south as Subramanyam. And it's within the Skanda Purana that we find the Guru Gita, that beautiful, often recited poem that extols the importance of having a guru. And from this body of literature, 
We know that Shiva was married to the daughter of the mountain. We know that Lord Shiva would go off on exploits with his guy friends and leave his wife, Parvati, disconsolate and lonely, and that out of her loneliness, she crafted and breathed life into the sandalwood image that she made that became the Lord Ganesh, her protector. We know that Shiva, in a fit of rage, severed the head of that boy and replaced that head as requested by Parvati with the head of the next living being that came in their presence that happened to be an elephant. We know that Skanda, the great warrior, was able to offer protections to so many. And that family of Shiva, Parvati, Skanda and Ganesha becomes a template for the good family of India. And we know that Shiva, as the Lord of Death, in his dance generates flames and fire, the fire and flame of destruction, linking Shiva to Agni in a very interesting way. And we know that when his wife fell into a sacrificial fire, and when life left her body, that Lord Shiva, hoisting her body upon his shoulder, forgot to do his job, and that all of the gods who were dismayed that nothing was dying realized that without death, the universe would become a very crowded place. Having followed Lord Shiva, implored him to let her go. And along the way, her body parts, the body parts of Parvati were dropped in all different regions of India, sacred pilgrimage sites even today, Tirtas, people travel to be at the site of her foot, of her hand, of her head. And they give honor and they give worship and they make pilgrimage. So many stories of Shiva gathered together in the Shiva Purana, enacted in the beautiful dance of Bharatanatyam, sculpted in temples throughout today the entire world. You can see magnificent large statues of Shiva seated in meditation, the rivers of the Ganges arising from his top knot. And in one piece called the Ishvara Gita, Shiva himself sings forth his Shaiva response to the Bhagavad Gita and gives advice, gives yoga for devotees of Shiva. And he proclaims, as does Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, that earth, water, fire, wind, space, mind, intellect, primal matter, all of them proceed from my command. Shiva identifies himself with Purusha, 
the universal and individual consciousness. And as we already know from the system of Sankhya Yoga, he states that knowledge cuts through the, the thicket of confusion and that it reveals the supreme abode. And he goes on to say that wherever that happens, it's because I, Shiva, am present. He states that renunciation accompanied by yoga is the highest way to know God. And he says, he says that the fire of yoga burns down the whole cage of evils. Okay. Yoga, fire. Yoga purifies. Yoga, destruction in a good way. It's said in India that when someone breaks a bone, that's an occasion for celebration because in the death of that bone, we know there will be a re-knitting. There will be the creation of a new and stronger life. And like that, people invoke Shiva to purge the evils, to purge the difficulties, and to allow the birth of pure knowledge. And that pure knowledge leads, according to Shiva, directly to nirvana and directly to a place of power. There are two yogas, according to Shiva, the yoga of non-being, the shunyata, erasure, do away with everything, go into quiet type of yoga, and then the highest yoga, the yoga that enables full engagement with the world and in the world. And this can be, according to Shiva, enacted through Ashta, Eightfold Anga Yoga, the eight limbs of yoga. And it says that there are, in opening, two forms of purity to be obtained through this yoga. One is an external purity that comes through water and earth, okay, using those elements. And two, an internal purity that comes through the focusing and purification of the mind. In order to facilitate this, Shiva advises unspeakable, unshakable, unmovable devotion to himself, to Shiva, through praise, remembrance, and worship with speech, body, and mind. Om Shivaya. Om Namaha Shivaya. Remember, remember that all things will be purified by the fire of death and allow, as we see in other Puranas, the breath and the control of breath to do its good work. If you're able to hold for a period of time the exhale so that you perspire, you're starting. If you're able to hold the exhale so that you tremble, you're making progress. And if you're able to hold that exhale as advised in the Yoga Sutra so that it begins to uncover 
that light, that life impulse, then you're beginning to elevate into a state of yoga. And Shiva prescribes not only Om Namah Shivaya, also prescribes recitation, as we've seen again and again, of that most sacred of mantras, the Gayatri Mantra. And he advises to sit in Padma Asana, as does he. And in image upon image, we see Shiva, his throat turned blue by his act of compassion, where he drank up the poison that was threatening the very well-being of the ocean itself. And we see in his strength of demeanor and his strength of presentation with his half-closed eyes in the yoga of Tradakam, we see with his hair gathered up on top of his head with a crescent moon, gracing his hairline. We see his trishula, we see his staff. He inspires people to emulate those states of meditation. And he specifies that as you move into meditation on that pure, supreme, eternal light, that you'll be able to emplace yourself within a lotus, and you'll be able to visualize a lotus rising 12 fingers above with eight petals, and that you'll visualize yourself as that 25th principle, as Purusha, as Shiva himself, as the syllable Om, unmanifest, hidden and disguised, within the other 24 tattvas of nature. And Shiva says, go to that Agnihotra sacrifice, go to that place where the Brahmins have done their good work and take the ash from that sacrifice and smear it on your body so that your body like mine will be covered with the whiteness of the ash and recitate that mantra to evoke the power that will take away all of the impurities of karma and visualize yourself as that Lord whose essence is pure light. In hearkening back to those seals from the Indus Valley that show the meditating figure of Pashupati, Lord, the Pati, of the Pashus, surround it with all different animals, like a shaman inviting in the antelope, inviting in the elephant, inviting in the rabbit, inviting in the cattle, inviting in the tiger and the lion, arrayed with all of those animals in a state of reverence in a state without fear, let you become the friend of all beings. Surrender, says Lord Shiva, surrender through this yoga all of your actions to the greatest good. 
be impartial, keep in that place of equanimity, be pure, be skillful, be in that place of vairagya, in that place of steadiness. And in that, turn your meditation from the bodily form of the narrative Shiva and direct your meditation into the most symbolic representation of Shaivism, which is the Shiva Lingam ensconced within the, yo the yoni, the Lingam and the womb, the upward triangle and the downward triangle united. And as you feature this as evoking through the Sri Yantra all of the simultaneous construction and creation and destruction and dissolution of the universe, bringing your attention to that focal middle point, you will see that the linga's essence, that marker of the presence of Lord Shiva in all things is the highest bliss. Nothing exists other than that linga, than that mark, that that linga, which is your state of consciousness, is free from blemish. It consists of that viveka. It consists of that ongoing vivekikyati and yoga, that ongoing discernment, that ongoing knowledge and wisdom, that all things will eventually be absorbed in the fires of destruction. And that this awareness is all pervading. This awareness is seen here. This awareness is seen there. This awareness is seen in the stuff of memory. This awareness is seen in the stuff of anticipation. That this awareness stands in the heart of the yogi, that when you go to the beach, when you see the waves of the water coming into the shore, there is the pure consciousness of Shiva. That when you stare into a single flame, when you stare into the campfire, when you go to the sacrificial fire, or if you're in the midst of the tragedy of seeing a burning barn, that there you will see the presence of the consciousness of Shiva. That with the rising sun, with the midday sun, with the setting sun, you see and are reminded of the consciousness of Shiva. That when you see a gem, when you see the moonstone or the diamond, or the sapphire, or the topaz, that when you gaze into that crystal, there you see your consciousness 
you see the purified consciousness of Shiva. According to Shaivism, according to the Shiva Purana, according to this moment in yoga history, arising from we don't know how long ago, but continuing into the present and beyond. According to this theology, according to this yoga, the whole world is made of the linga. The whole world rests upon the presence of that witness, that presence of Lord Shiva. Om Namaha Shivaya. Thank you for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the history of yoga. Look for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.